0: Good morning. Welcome to worship. My father was a deep-hearted Christian, raised six kids. They were, mom and dad were always very busy. I I wouldn't classify him as a deep thinker or a very sophisticated theologian, but he had a very firm grasp on grace and the gospel, and he could not talk about it without emotion, because he was passionate about it. He had a personal attachment to Jesus' grace. He would get shaky in his voice. He would get intent. And sometimes, because it was hard with my father and the way he communicated emotions, you couldn't even tell if he was angry or happy. He was just passionate. (laughs) You've been around people like that? That's what I was raised by. I think I have a tincture of that. At least my kids talk about it. It was a long time ago. I was a young pastor just starting out here at this church. My parents came down from Dallas to be with us for the weekend. My dad heard me preach on Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I said about myself, what? Whoa, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. My father rejoiced in the word of God because it released him from lifelong guilt and fear that he could never make it to heaven. He'd been that way since I was one years old. Uh, after church, the church was in that other building. This building didn't exist. People were almost all gone. He uh, had a one monumental moment. It's, I, I was a grown man. I'd gone to seminary. I learned a lot more than my dad knew pulled me aside, and he said, that was a great sermon. Don't you ever preach any different. I said, what do you mean? He said, everybody comes into this church, every church, every Sunday. They either, one of their ailments is they either think they're better than someone by some accomplishment, something about themselves, or they think they're worse than someone because of some sin or some guilt. And he said, you know, I'm a grown man. I got two kids and one on the way. Finger in the face. Your job is to make everyone a zero. And then you make them 100% in Christ. Voice was shaking. His eye was filled with tears. And he was right. You cannot know God if you don't know that on your own, you are a moral failure. You cannot know God if you don't know that in Christ He has taken all that failure away. You can't know God. Whenever I read this text from Romans, it wasn't the text I was preaching that day, but whenever I read this text from Romans, I can't not think about my dad, and that's why I'm using that as the opening illustration because... And I think about that moment, because what he did as a father to his preacher's son, the Apostle Paul, is doing to anybody who ever reads this, and especially his original readers. Paul, the great Christian apostle missionary, is going to go to Rome. He's never been there. He knows some Christians there because people moved around. And they've, they know he's coming, and he's going to send this letter, we call Romans, ahead of himself to teach them the gospel and the Christianity that Paul teaches, which he knows is inspired by God. And, and frankly, isn't always taught by people who call themselves Christians, even apostles in Paul's day. So he is clearing the air, and he is speaking the truth, and he takes no prisoners. You know what we mean by that, right? Everybody gets shot down, made a zero. But he's got some people in the church up in Rome that are big in their britches thinking they're very important. Most of them are afflicted with religion. That's why they feel they're so important. And if you think that's not a problem for you regular churchgoers, think again. It is one of our biggest problems. The, The more we're in practicing our Christian faith, the more tempted we are to start seeing ourselves as the elite, the God people, while the rest of the world riots, lives immoral, neglects their family, does weird liberal things, we'd say. Got it. The people that had it up there, well, in this case, in the first few chapters, what he's hammering at are the Jewish people that were afflicted with lifelong religion. In fact, looking at you, that most of you are lifelong churchgoers, you, this temptation is bigger for you than someone who comes to know God and through Jesus Christ later in life. We get stuck in our heritage kind of faith, the connection to the, 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 the institution, our church or church body that gave us our faith. And we end up subtly gradually talking more about church than we do about repentance and faith and love the Jewish people had a really heavy dose of that so I'm going to real quickly tell you we're in chapter three today for the, the sermon and uh, I'm going to tell you real quickly a summary of, of one chapter one and two and the beginning of chapter three because everything in the Bible is written in a context So when we preach on a certain text and we yank it out of its context, it's not fair to you. You're going to learn so much more if I teach you the context. So he's writing this letter. I've already given you that context. He wants to go there and do church work and spread the gospel. He doesn't know these people. He's introducing himself and his gospel. So he starts off in chapter 1 and he says, My gospel is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He was a descendant of David according to the flesh, but the son of God. He proved it by being raised from the dead. And he taught that people are saved through the good news that Jesus was your savior. And it's the only way into the kingdom of God is through faith in Jesus. He says, from faith to faith. I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And he says, the world's a bad place and those non believers, they're really bad people. He calls them Gentiles. He says they practice idolatry. They make, they even, and in Roman society and before that, in the Canaanite society and everything in between that this happened, he says everything a Jew wants to hear. They make idols that look like animals and they practice immorality. God turned them over to a base mind. And the Jewish Christian in the church that's reading this or hearing it read would be going yeah Paul you give it to them and he say and they they're insolent and rebellious and they they slander people yeah you tell them they're bad guys they're all full of sin and they're insolent he goes they they rebel against their parents yeah they rebel against their parents too and he gets to chapter two which he's not writing in chapters he's just writing Someone numbered them later. Chapter 2, he says, you, you, you condemn the same acts that I just condemned? And you practice the same things? You think you'll escape God's judgment? Wait a minute. It reminds me of one of my favorite church jokes that this guy in the back of the church was uh, saying amen and hallelujah while the preacher was talking. The preacher said, and you got them cigarettes at home and you need to stop smoking. He goes, you preach it, brother, from the back pew. And then you've been cussing a lot at work. You don't cuss in the church house, but you cuss at home. You tell them, brother, he says from the back pew. And he goes, and you got that alcohol in the refrigerator and you've been drinking too much. And the guy in the back pew goes, you go on to meddling now. <laughs> what Paul is saying In chapter 2 is, he got us on the hook. Yeah, those bad Gentiles. Yeah, those bad people in the world. And he goes, but you practice the same things. And he kind of talks about how, but he leaves most of it up to us. So real quickly, I'll talk about how. You can slam slam people because they're immoral and they create that stuff on media. But then you watch it. Or if you don't watch it, you wish you could without guilt. And you fantasize your own little media in your head. You practice the same things. Paul did say. You who say don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You fantasize about what it would be like to be married to somebody else. Maybe even covet somebody else's spouse. It would be nice to be married to them. And, and whatever sins it, they are. Right? Paul is saying. You Jews. Who think because they're so unscrupulous that you're better you church people if you go down that road you're going to lose your salvation that's what he's saying a really neat verse in in chapter 2 is verse 4 says do you despise the kindness and patience and forbearance of god remember jesus sitting with the prostitutes and tax collectors to teach him the word while the pharisees stayed separate do you despise the grace of God that leads people to repentance by judging them? That's all you're going to do is judge? That's all you're going to do is separate, make yourself feel better? When he's finished, when he's wrapping up chapter two, he's, he's ready to say, well, then you might be asking, what advantage is it to that we grew up religious and Jewish? And he goes, well, you had all the word of God and you had the promises of a, of a coming Messiah and you had the law, which is good. He said, everyone, the Gentile has the law written in their heart, the Jew has the law written in their heart and in the word of God, but everyone, and now we're leading up to our text, everyone who has the law has that good thing that does something good for them. And you say, what is the good it does? Well, it keeps us on the straight and narrow and makes us live the good life. No, law doesn't have that kind of power. Let's go to the next slide. We're going to look now into the text. I hope you can see it. You know, we we usually put Bibles in the pews, but not during COVID. If you've got it on your phone and you wanna see it close up, I'd love it if you'd bring your Bibles to church, but we haven't made that a thing. So in trying to get you to really understand this word of God, you gotta concentrate on that screen so that all your senses are working while you're listening to me and also reading it yourself. Chapter three, 19 to 20. These are famous for Bible students. And if that's okay, if they are not famous for you, maybe they will be after today. Now, we know that whatever the law, the Ten Commandments says, it says to those who are under the law, the people at church, the synagogue, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one, would you repeat those two words with me? No one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin Luther called this the use of the law as a mirror, right? The first thing that the law does is show you your sin. No one will be declared righteous before God. So you Jewish people up there, if if you're thinking, yeah, those bad Gentiles, he goes, yeah, those bad Jews who practice it in their heart because they still have a sinner's heart. Just because religion has made them a little more religiously and socially acceptable among themselves doesn't make them righteous, Everyone needs a Redeemer. The law shuts you up. Picture of two little boys. Mom and dad are in bed. They get up early on Saturday morning. They get the cereal box out. There's only enough cereal for one bowl of cereal. The two little boys start to fight over the cereal because they both want that bowl of Fruit Loops. And and the, and one of them ends up throwing the milk at the other one, and the other one throws the bowl of <laughs> Fruit Loops at the other. And there's a racket and a ruckus, and there's There's noise that wakes up the parents and they come down the stairs into where the boys are making a mess out of the kitchen. They go, what happened? And little brother says, he started it. Suddenly that's supposed to be make it okay that he hurled the bowl of fruit loops at his brother because his brother started it, right? So the parents, one by one, confront both of them until they both what? Stop excusing, stop blaming And stop denying. So that their mouth is what? Shut. That little boy is you. When God's on the move. When God wants to come into a person's heart. And stay there. And come back. And come back. And come back into your heart. It's always going to be through law and gospel. And so he comes and he shuts your mouth up from your blame and your excuses. Even if you're Job, who was such a good man and suffered so much. Job, don't you criticize the creator of the universe. Shut your mouth. Until Job finally said what? I'm a worm and not a man. That's the way God. That's that deep, deep faith that my father understood that that's the way God deals with sinners. Shut your mouth of excusing, denying, and blaming and get before me, humble, that you need me as a redeemer, savior, God. Understand that will always be the, the relationship that we're to have with God. Well, I, remember, I remember a lot of stories being at the feet of great men of faith at the seminary, but I remember one seminary prof talking about a prof of his who died of cancer, and so as a younger, um, this prof talking to me was in his 70s at the time, I was in my 20s, as a younger man going to give bedside devotions to his dying professor, he, he, the professor's wife said to her husband, I just don't know why God, after all you've done for him, would let you suffer so much, oh, 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 right, to which the dying from painful cancer pastor professor from his bed said the only posture before a holy God is a humble one the law of God is ruthless and it is exacting and it will confront everyone and when it's confronting you don't shoot the messenger look to heaven and listen God is shutting your mouth remember what he said to Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration shh, listen to him. you don't listen, you won't get the gospel you're supposed to wait for. Go to the next paragraph. Paul writes more. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which... The law and the prophets testify I have to help you understand that sometimes in English we get a little confused because of the the way that words get translated when he says the, now a righteousness apart from the law is revealed he means the law ten commandments then when he says all the law and the prophets testify he's talking about a different use of the word law the word law there means the first five books of the Bible So if you will, I'll translate this for you a little bit more carefully for you. But now a righteousness apart from the law, now apart from the law, a righteousness of God is revealed to which the first five books of the Bible and all the 17 prophets testify, which for a Jew meant the whole Old Testament, which was their written Bible at the time. The New Testament's being written. So he's saying the whole Bible that we have testifies that there is a righteousness from God Revealed apart from the law. Now you've got to understand something. For a Jewish person, this is catastrophic to the, all the theological constructs they've had in their mind. They, they, they've already they've, they've come to church of Jesus Christ, so they've got some kind of Christian faith. But Paul is saying something that is categorically erasing the importance of the whole Jewish ethic. God gave us his commandments including the ceremonial laws. We keep them all and so we acknowledge by faith we are his people, those stinky Gentiles who won't keep anything. They eat pigs, they are immoral, they do all kinds of stuff. We keep his law and it's the law given to Moses from heaven. It is ours. And Paul says, you know what? All those books that tell all those stories, they talk about a different righteousness. Not a righteousness of your performance. It's a righteousness of someone who was to come who would be a sacrifice for you. It's all there in your book is what he's saying. And it erases all your haughty pride and your religiosity. It reduces you like my daddy would say to a what? A zero. And then it gives you his son. See, I'm like my dad. You can't tell if I'm mad or happy. Just being passionate. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. These are some of the most beautiful passages. They are the foundation, the concrete slab you have to pour first before you can build any Christian faith are these verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So well known that we get bored with them. Oh my goodness, don't. Who holds, the, who holds the longest long jump record? I always thought it was, for a long time I thought it was, Carl Lewis. A guy named Mike Powell beat that in 1991. Internet's a wonderful thing. You can find that stuff out. Okay, so Mike Powell and I, old man Don Patterson, we're going to jump the Grand Canyon. We get on one side. It's a mile, mile and a half wide, depending on where you are, right? We line up. Me with my decrepit knees, my old body. I never have been all that athletic. And I I say, I'm going to go first. And I run, and I jump, and I go, 10 feet, and then to my death. Mike Powell lines up. Yeah, he can jump 29 feet plus, right? He gets a longer run. He's worked out. He's trained. He runs 29 point whatever feet, a new world record, and then what happens? To his death. All have sinned and what? Fall short. The most holy person you would ever imagine apart from jesus christ is mike powell same death as yours all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god everybody's a zero there is no one righteous no not one that's a whole diatribe that i skipped for you because i i gotta keep moving it's right in chapter three all have sinned and are justified declared innocent that's what the word justified means they're de- declared innocent freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And just tucked in the middle of this passage is this statement, there is no difference. There is no difference. At the very beginning of church today, Pastor Herring said, we're kind of emphasizing our oneness in Christ through the gospel and baptism, because what special day is tomorrow? Come on, Martin Luther King Day, the civil rights movement to give equality in a society called America to people of color alongside of people as pasty white as I am. To try to give everyone some equality of privilege, right? Am I speaking words lately of the BLM movement? Sure. Do you notice that through the kingdom of God and his word, which is more powerful than any movement that's a social justice movement, God has already established our sameness in the gospel. But the secret to really having your heart and mind changed is one by one, each sinner realizing there's no difference. Between them and other sinners? Sure, we have different privileges. Everybody always will somehow. We have different life stories. We have different uh, specific sins that we commit and different bents that we have. But there's no difference in righteousness or unrighteousness. Everyone is a zero. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, but but sometimes we nod with that and we go, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. like. When, they, when Paul was preaching in chapter 1 of Romans, those of that we go, yeah, 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 until he goes to meddling. So let me meddle a little bit. There's no difference between old people who tend to judge young people and get crotchety and young people who tend to judge old people for being slow. There's no difference. There's no difference between men with our simple, boorish mind and women with their hypersensitivity and emotional connectedness where everything is connected to everything. They're both accountable to God. They're both zeros. They both have a savior. There's no difference between someone who's loud and extroverted and someone who's quiet and introverted. There's Neither one is better. There's no difference between someone whose IQ is a little higher or someone who's constantly in um, special ed classes. There's no difference between women and men. There's no difference between boys and girls. There's no difference between black and white. There's no difference between gay and not gay. They both are accountable to God. They both have to answer for the sins of their life. There is no difference between someone who has a strong opinion about this whole COVID thing being a conspiracy, a world conspiracy, and those that believe it's just a real medical pandemic. There's no difference between someone who thinks they should be wearing a mask or someone who thinks that they shouldn't. In terms of rightness before God, there is no difference. The, this whole COVID thing is what's, what's fascinating to me as a pastor, a theologian, is that the whole COVID thing's created a whole new construct where we can judge one another. <laughs> now I got a whole new reason a year ago, a year and a half ago, I didn't have to be mad or upset or frustrated or study, study my little propaganda and then judge you as a bad person because you don't get it. There's no room for that kind of functional pride, dear people, about any of the things I mentioned and a hundred more you can think of. You see how we're functionally like the people Paul was preaching to often when we actually say we believe the gospel? There is no difference. When you look at this verse, it says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. He actually left the words Jew and Gentile out. The translators are trying to help you. He just said there is no difference. And he's, it's the most beautiful thing. If you've got a, a, a Bible on your phone, you can get a guy to read these verses to you. Get the Bible out. We'll re- go, start in chapter 1 and go through the end of chapter 4. Let the Bible guy read it to you while you read it with your eyes. And you'll just see this beautiful weaving over and over again. It doesn't matter. Everybody needs a Savior and the only way... To be right with God is through what Jesus did in believing in Him and the whole Old Testament. And he, chapter 4 goes into Abraham and David. The whole Old testament is filled with all this, he says. I want to go to the next section and show you what God says here. Let's put it up there on the screen. It's verse 26. This is where Paul gets specific. Verse 25 and 26. This is the resolution, the story that is the resolution of the argument, why, if there is a good God on earth, over the earth, why is there evil? This is the gospel's answer. And it's a beautiful story of love that's overwhelming when you look at it. It says, God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement. That sounds so theological. It sounds so heady. It's like, oh, yeah, we know that's the gospel. That's what he did. No, this was a father and a son. Remember? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I always do what the father wants. He loves me more than any other human being because I'm perfect and I always do what he wants. And the father said from heaven, you're right. This is his son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the closest family relationship Anyone has ever and will ever have. And God the Father took him by the hand and said, get on the wood and be killed. On the same mountain range where he told Abraham to do it to Isaac. And we look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and we go, I could never do that. And that's the point. God did it for you. Jesus did it for you. And he did it for the people that you judge that you're better than. He did it for the people that hurt you too or didn't let you get your way. Yesterday I was at Tractor Supply. Got a certain card that I like to use. My son and I use it together for the the ranch. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. And the girl said, you know, you're just going to have to use a different way to pay. And I want to stamp my foot. No, we're going to stay here until I pay you this way. This is the way I want to pay. And as I walk out of the store, I go, like, Why am I mad at that girl? <laughs> because I'm a judger, right? I got this same disease I condemn others for. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for that sin. You think of your worst sins the worst sin that you've got in your head or heart. That thing that you pray never has to come to light. Or if it has, that you are the most embarrassed by. God took Jesus by the hand and presented him as a sacrifice for that sin. And he laid it on him and he took it away. Now do you want to say, yay God, yes. Rather than, yay God, you're preaching against those bad guys. You say, yay God, you took That sin away. But he took the sin away. Of the person that hurt you too. And this is the radical. Amazing. Power of the gospel. That we learn. That God loves the guy or gal. That hurt me as much as he loves me. And you don't. Love that person as much as you love you. We love you way more. That's really why you're bitter. And this is the medicine. To leave it all at the foot of the cross and let Jesus' sacrifice of atonement pay for their sin as much as yours. Because there is no difference between perpetrator and victim. Not everything in a book I'm going to recommend you read is, is perfect theologically, but it's a really good book. It's called The Shack that it presses this point home that God loves the perpetrator as much as the victim. And he does. This is the radical, beautiful, wonderful gospel that there is no difference. You see how it's bigger and better and deeper and wider than a civil rights movement? It makes us all a zero. It makes us all a hundred in Christ. And it makes preaching and teaching the message that Jesus has saved all people Complete. It applies to everyone. It gets us out of our shell and out of our ju- world of, of confinement and our judgments and the way that we protect ourselves and navigate away from people that hurt us and don't like, we don't like. And it gets us out there to say the gospel is for them too. I'm going to be the light. In fact, If God has allowed you to be engaged with someone because they hurt you, that's how you got engaged. He wanted them to meet a Christian who would forgive them. He wanted them to see love and light and grace coming from you. You want to know what the meaning of that was? God was introducing them to you. And if you pouted and got angry and frustrated and that's all you did and you didn't turn back and start to love and forgive, you missed your opportunity. But the good news, you'll get more. You're forgiven for that too. There is no difference. We're all forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? All God's people say, amen to that, right? Okay, so let me just kind of wrap it up for you. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How many times have you thought or you've had somebody say, if there really is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? Don't don't cower at that logical conundrum. Use it to preach Christ. Here's what you say. I want to, you say to the person, I want to tell you something that is probably going to be hard for you to take, and it's amazingly radical, but I'm going to say it to you. God took all the evil that you are chafed about, that you want him to make right, and he put the punishment for all that evil that you want to be punished on his own son. That's what the verses say. God's reputation was at stake for centuries because there was no Jesus who died on the cross. Here I am 2,000 years later with you, and we're preaching a Christ who died for everything. But before he died for everything, they couldn't. there was no one we could say he died for everything. That's what Paul is saying. In the fullness of time, God presented his son. So all the sins of the world were left unpaid for in the terms of Jesus until in time he came and paid for them. Don't you look at the story of Cain and Abel? The very first death was a murder, a brother murdering another. Don't you look at that and go, God, why didn't you come in into Cain's life, knock him dead, and raise Abel to life? That would be just. Instead, Abel's got to stay dead from the planet and Cain gets to go on and you even put a mark on him to protect him and he still showed a selfish attitude through the whole thing why are you so unfair unjust God says wait for it wait for it coming in the cross see because if i'm if i if if i do the the fair thing and the just thing for Cain i have to do it for Everybody. Then what would I be left? Kill all of humanity. No. I'll kill my son. For all of humanity. And raise him back to life. So there's hope for Cain. As much as there is for Abel. Because see I'm the radical God creator of the universe that loves all people. Who are made in my image. Even the perpetrator. We're going to have a change of presidency in just a few days. Three. We're going to have a lot of rhetoric, a lot of shallow blah, blah, blah across the aisle. Remember, God loves everyone. By ourselves, we're all a zero, both sides of any aisle. But in Christ, we are all 100%. why did I tell you a story about my dad and before we went into the scripture? It wasn't to just show him off. Because I want you to be like him. You don't have to be a deep thinker or a sophisticated theologian. You need to know Christ. is your everything. And nothing in your hand you bring is simply to his cross to you claim. I want you to be like him—passionate, humble, willing to share love and truth with everyone, from the person to hurt you to the person that helps you, because you know Jesus. Amen.